The epistle reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. The problem at the church in Corinth is selfishness. But it's not of the normal sort. It's not the crass selfishness of greed and conspiracy and manipulation. It is more subtle and harder to spot. It is a pious selfishness, like that of the scribes and the Pharisees who were so diligent in their own personal devotion but neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. The Corinthians are selfish in the name of the gospel. They have taken their freedom in Jesus and turned it inward so that the center of life becomes my faith, my conscience, instead of what it ought to be, love. Now, if you know anything about the church in Corinth, you know that it was a wreck church was rife with division. They each had their own favorite pastor. They looked the other way when someone was stuck in sin. They fought with one another, and rather than settling things in love, they took each other to court. They were snooty, puffed up, as Paul says, looking down on the poor and hurting the weak in faith. But none of this seemed problematic to them. After all, I can't believe 
for anyone else, and I have enough of my own stuff to worry about, so I'm just going to take care of me, my faith, my conscience. I'm just going to listen to the pastor I like best, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter, 1 Corinthians 3, And what difference does it really make if the guy in the next pew is sleeping with his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5? Of course, he shouldn't do that, but what business is it of mine? And if somebody insults me or wrongs me, I'm not going to just roll over 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to stand up for my rights, brother or no brother. And that gets us to this strange case in 1 Corinthians 8. In Corinth, as in much of Greek and Roman society, it was common for the animals sacrificed in pagan temples to then be served at celebrations, feasts, and banquets in the temple dining room. And so, in the mail, you might get an invitation that read, Come dine at the table of Aphrodite in her temple in honor of my birthday. Or the meat could end up in the market, where, as you can imagine, it was highly prized for having been used in worship. And all of this was mainstream. It was everywhere. Everyone knew who Aphrodite was, and everyone knew what it meant to eat food sacrifices. And so, you can also imagine how Christians who had once worshipped in those temples and who were surrounded by that pagan worship day in and day out. You can imagine how it would seem like a bad idea to go to a feast in a temple and eat the food sacrificed to an idol. Yes, you'd have to decline some invitations, and yes, you'd miss out on opportunities, and yes, you'd seem like an outsider. But like a recovering alcoholic for whom even one drink is too many, stepping foot back into that darkness would have been mortifying. Now, imagine those puffed-up Corinthian Christians who say to themselves, wait a minute, food is food is food, and idols are nothing, and the meat that's sacrificed to those idols, it's just meat, doesn't mean anything. God doesn't care what I eat. You remember this. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of a person's mouth that defiles him. Jesus said so himself. So, it can't hurt me. Where's the party? In one sense, of course, they're right. They have their facts straight. Their knowledge, as they put it. But they're selfish. And so they have neglected love. Paul puts the Corinthians to shame. If you think you know something, if you think you're discerning enough, mature enough to dine at the table of demons, then you most certainly are not. But you don't have to take my word for it, he says. The proof is in the pudding. How can you be so discerning, so knowledgeable, And only think of your own conscience, your own faith, your own good. Don't you know what happens when you scandalize your weaker brother, when your fellow Christian sees you dining in a temple of Aphrodite? What is he to think? 
he'll think that it should be okay for him too. It's like offering a drink to a recovering alcoholic. And he'll sin against his conscience, and so you will destroy him, someone for whom Jesus died. You sin against Jesus himself. Now where does this leave us? It's not really something we, a problem we face all that often today, but we are just as tempted as the Corinthians to be piously selfish, to be diligent in sorting out my faith, my conscience, my personal relationship with Jesus, but to neglect the weightier matter of love. We are tempted to act as though our brothers and sisters don't depend on us. Take, for instance, just the simple matter of coming to church or going to Bible study or participating in the life of the community. Now, I will be the first to tell you that you should come to church and you should go to Bible study and you should be a part of this life because you need it for your faith. But let's suppose I reach a point where I feel like I don't need it any longer. I feel like I'm not really getting anything out of the liturgy or out of the sermons, and maybe even the Eucharist seems kind of ho-hum. And I know the Bible Bible stories. I already get the point, saved by grace through faith. I learned all of that in confirmation. I'm on board. Does that then mean that since I've gotten what I need, I can be done? When I think I've got it, I can just check out. Of course not. And it's downright ridiculous to say so. But it is very, very easy to be selfish in thinking that at least in some way, in some part of life at church, your only job is to get something from it. To work on your faith. In reply, Paul would say two things. First of all, if you think you've got it, then that is precisely when you haven't got it. But even if you did, even if you were there, even if you were completely on board and you got everything, the rest of us need you. We need you here with your singing and your amens and your faithfulness more than you can imagine. We need you here struggling alongside us, building us up with your love because we have been knit together by the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. We need you to think of our faith, our consciences, because you are our encouragement. You are like Jesus to the rest of us. You've got his name, you've got his word, you bear in yourselves his very body and blood. In you, the rest of us get to see what Jesus looks like. This is the most important point. If you take away nothing else today, take away this. In you, the rest of us see our crucified and risen Savior. That is an extraordinary gift to us. And it is a monumental task, I know. But you should not think of it as a burden. You should think of it as an honor. That you matter so much in God's kingdom that our faith depends on you. 
and you should take comfort. Because all of us are here to do precisely the same for you, the whole lot of us. You are not in this by yourself, not by a long shot. We are all in this together. Jesus has given us to one another to be his body, baptized in one spirit so that together we can pursue his love. I pray that Jesus, who forgives all your sins and covers you with his grace, will strengthen you by his death and resurrection to live in love for his sake. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.